0: Jesus, you say that we are all to come to you, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will give us rest. Lord, in your presence, we truly do find rest for our souls. And Lord, your, your word promises, as you promised us, that you will never leave us or forsake us. But Lord, so often, we get drawn away. We take our eyes off of you and we focus on the, the craziness of the storms around us, the busyness of the, the days that surround us. And Lord, we, we purposefully right now lay everything at your feet. Lord, everything that we're dealing with, whether it's physically, emotionally, whether it's at the job or at home. Lord, all of those areas that, Lord, you, you ask, you just say, give those to me. So, Lord, we do that now. Our desire is to be ministered to tonight by you from your word. So, Lord, have your way in us. Lord, show us and guide us and lead us in your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good evening. Please take out your Bibles, please, and open them up to the book of Joshua. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from a, under a seat in front of you on a rack there. This is a Bible study, so you need one. Joshua. Chapter 9 is where we will begin our study tonight. Real quickly, kind of a real fast recap of how we've gotten to the point where we are, the the children of Israel are now in the promised land as we as we know the their their leader that brought them out of Egypt, Moses passed away in the wilderness, Joshua now is the leader and and has taken them across the Jordan River into the promised land and we have talked as we've gone through this study this isn't just a history lesson there is there are many things that we can learn and draw and and grab a hold of in application for our own lives because as we've said the the promised land is a picture of the victorious Christian life. It is not a picture of heaven. We've already seen a couple of battles and we're gonna talk about several more of them tonight. There's no battles in heaven. So this is speaking of the, the victorious Christian life and there are many things that we can draw out of that and we have as we've looked in the battle of Jericho and then in the failure of the initial battle against the, the city of Ai, and then the successful battle is where we finished up in our study last time, there will be victories in our life as Christians. But we have to understand, we have to realize that, that with every victory, especially those, those big victories in our life, there will come battles immediately following those. The enemy, the enemy isn't going to roll over and play dead. The enemy isn't going to go away because, because we win a battle here or there. If anything, the intensity gets turned up. If you are not facing temptation and trials and difficulties on a regular basis in your life, you have to start asking yourself some, some questions, you need to examine your life. Are we, if, if, we, if we face no temptation from, from the enemy, the enemy does not consider us a threat. Those of, of us that, that are out there and that are, that are putting our faith into action and living that life and we're seeing victory in our lives, the enemy hates that, guys. And so, so those things, we, nobody wants to uh, say, man, I, I can't look forward to all the temptation and difficulties I'm going to face tomorrow. <laughs> but we need to look at those things as they come as, as confirmation that we are walking in the right way. Now we're gonna see, because this is on the heels again of another victory. Remember, we saw what happened on the heels of the victory at Jericho, the failure at Ai, but we're gonna see now that on the heels of the victory in Ai, we're gonna see now attacks that come. First of all, as we see, chapter nine, they come in a couple of different ways right away at us here first, chapter nine, verse one. Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the low land and on the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite heard of it. They heard of it. What's it? That, that Israel is here. They're no longer that, that the, those people that we've been hearing about, those people that God delivered out of Egypt, The people that were winning a couple of battles on the other side of the Jordan, we now know they're here. Word is spread around that they're here and and they've had the victory at Jericho now and the victory at Ai. They've heard of this. Remember when we talked in Jericho, when we were looking at that, Word had gotten to Jericho already about the children of Israel, that that word had spread. God had sent that word ahead. So this is all over Canaan, but now it's a real thing. They're here. That time is here. So now this is here, and it says in verse 2, that they gathered all of these kings of these, kind of these different cities, and they gathered themselves together in one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. Now, the first problem that they have is you could probably find a better battle vehicle than an accord. Maybe a Hummer, I don't know, a tank, something. All right, I, I know that's a horrible joke, and I crossed it out, but I did it anyway. You're gonna say that, though. Yeah, I guarantee you, if one of you, you're gonna use that at work tomorrow. You're gonna say, you know, it's a Honda in the Bible. Anyway, <laughs> one accord. Literally, what that means is, if if you have a marginal Bible, that tells you in there one mouth, one voice. What 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 the point that's being that that we want to look at here and, and and underscore is that the. These these guys aren't naturally friends, these different cities. They've been fighting against each other for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, but they're gathering together in an alliance now to come against God's people. And we also need to realize that and recognize that as Christians in the battles that we face. We are going to face unholy alliances against people that probably don't necessarily get along with each other on a regular basis. But they'll get together to come against us as God's people. Well, it says that, that they're gathering this together. Now, we're going to take a pause from this in the rest of chapter 9, pick this up in chapter 10. But we see, first of all here, that, this, that they come against the united, this ma- major force. But also now, look at cha- starting in verse, in verse 3. It says, When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done at Jericho and Ai, They also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their possession was dry and had become crumbled. They went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him, and to the men of, of Israel, "We have come from a far country. Now therefore, make a covenant with us." So the first group comes, and they're getting ready, full front attack. But here we see the subtlety of the enemy, the, the subtlety of the enemy. I find it interesting as we look at this that in verse 4 it says, they also acted craftily. Craftily. You know where that word is first used in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden." The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Crafty. That word means subtle, shrewd, sly. We all have these pictures in our mind of of the devil, you know, we get them from when we're a little kid, and that just keeps going, you know, and this idea that, you know, the, the pitchfork and the, you know, the red and the horns and all of that kind of stuff, and we have a picture, remember, when we're going through Revelation, the dragon, you know, this, this beast, well, we need to understand that, that that's not how the enemy comes most of the time, especially against believers, He's going to be subtle. He's going to know that we're going to recognize evil when it just roars at us. So he's going to come subtly. He's going to come shrewdly. He's not going to be scary. He's going to appear harmless. Now, we can look at the story back in Genesis chapter 3 and say, Harmless? A snake? Are, are, are you kidding? A snake? Well, it appeared harmless to Eve and to Adam. Those snakes weren't a problem then, they were pets. You know, they, they, we don't, they didn't have the same issue with snakes as, as we do today. That happened after the fall. So he comes at the, as this snake and just having this gentle conversation. And again, here we see, see this same thing, this, this same thing happening here, coming totally harmless. Hey, we're, we're, we're your friends. We're coming from, from way far away. And we see the same thing, the same crafty shrewdness that the enemy used back in chapter 3. We see it here. First, twisting the truth, bending the truth, outright lying, <laughs> softening. That's one of the, the things that the enemy does so, so Well. Is, is softening, softening the, the God's word. Did God really say? And if he said, did he really mean? And oh, it's just once. All of those types of things, subtle, shrewd. Ultimately, the desire is to change our view of God, to change it from the fact that he is a loving, caring God to a God that is just holding out on us. This, this harsh God. The whole, again, the desire is to distort in order to deceive, to get us to disobey. This enemy is doing that same type of thing. They must know, and we're going to get to it in a moment as to why I believe that. They must know that God has commanded them to wipe out everyone in Canaan. They have to know that. So they're coming with a totally different roundabout way. Look again, the same type of thing. Oh, they're crafty. They're, they're pretending to be something that they're not, as Satan often does. Pretending instead to be, instead of this vicious beast that we know he is, pretending to be something that, look, they're pretending to be envoys. They're pretending to be these, these messengers that have come from a long ways away. They're 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 pretending they're they're deceptive they're they're they have on they they're purposely they only traveled 20 miles we're going to get to that in a second but they they set it all up with worn out shoes and moldy bread and all this kind of stuff to make it look like they've been traveling for weeks if not months to get there so it's all again a big deception and initially look at verse 7 it tells us that that they they're kind of picking up on it verse 7 the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Then Joshua just said to them, who are you and where do you come from? We see here in these two verses that there is that, that check initially. It's coming, oh, wait a second, this is kind of fishy. This doesn't, this doesn't add up. And and so there was something about that. And guys, in this, I see again, as followers of God, as children of God, we have the Holy Spirit within us. And the Holy Spirit gives us that check when there are things that are coming that are not right, That, that, that that it's just not in place, things aren't adding up, and we get that check. It is so important that we pay attention to that. Colossians 3.15 says this. This is a, a, I love this verse. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And that word rule is literally to umpire. to, To make the decisions as we go. The peace of Christ. Now, again, as believers, we all have the peace of Christ in us. That's not something that we need to manufacture or that we need to get. It is given to us. But we need to let that peace that is within us rule us, umpire us. As Isaiah records, Isaiah thirty, I believe that it says, "You know, I will direct you. I will, I will whisper to you this way and that." Directing us, let the peace of Christ umpire. Guys, don't move without the peace of Christ. Don't make a decision to move out without that peace. Right here, right now, they should have said, man, I don't have a good feeling about this. I don't have peace about this. Joshua, we need to go to the Lord right now. Paul said to the Philippians, Philippians chapter four, be anxious for nothing, but in all everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love that for several reasons, but the very end, it's the peace that surpasses all understanding, surpasses comprehension, not the peace that comes from comprehension. We're gonna see, unfortunately, what happens when we rely on the peace that comes from understanding. That's what, that's what happens here as we look through this. That's why, why it says, when he was talking to the church in Colossae, let the, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, not your minds, your hearts, because our hearts are wicked by nature. Our hearts are deceptive by nature. And we can deceive ourselves. We can, again, excuse our way through things. You know, because I know it's true. I've had believers come and talk to me. I know the word of God says I should not be yoked with an unbeliever. But I have peace about this. That's not the peace of God. I know that I'm supposed to be honest in all of my dealings and and everything that I do, I'm supposed to be above board, but I have peace about taking this or claiming this or cheating in this way to save on my taxes. That's not the peace of God. I know the Bible says that we're not supposed to live together if we're not married, but we have peace. It's not the peace of God. The peace of God will never, ever, ever violate the word of God. Ever. No matter how much peace we have. I mean, we can look at we could look at, at Nineveh and, and, and Jonah, right? God told God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, right? And and that was the word of God. Go to Nineveh. But Jonah said, No, I'm gonna go to Tarshish. So he gets on a boat, he's go, he goes down, and, and probably. I'm just going to put myself in Jonah's shoes. I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to go down to the, 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 the sea here, and if there's a boat there, that must be a sign that I'm supposed to go to Tarshish. <laughs> oh, what do you know? There's a boat. <laughs> you know, we can convince ourselves all of these things, but God didn't say go to Tarshish. He said go to Nineveh. But Jonah was at such peace with his decision, he fell asleep in the boat. Again, we have to be sure that it's the peace of Christ that is ruling us, not the peace in our flesh. Because here we see as we continue after this check, after what they, were, they, they had here, the danger of relying on the peace that comes from understanding, not the peace that surpasses it. We looked here at j- chapter, verse 9. They said to him, now they're responding to Joshua's question, where are you, who are you and where do you come from? Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard the report of him and all he did in Egypt and all he did with the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtoreth. So our elders... And all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. This is our bread. It was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our house and on the day that we left to come to you. But now look at it. It's dry and has become crumbled. These wineskins were filled, were new, and behold, they are torn. And look at our clothes and our sandals. They're worn out because of the long journey. Verse 14. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. We looked at the subtlety of the enemy. Here we see the susceptibility of humanity. Relying on their own comprehension. Notice again how sly the enemy is. <laughs> Did you catch that when we were reading through it? He said, they said, we heard about Egypt. And we heard about your victories on the other side of the Jordan. They didn't mention the victories in Jericho and Ai. Why? Because they supposedly left probably before those happened. I mean, they're, they're, just, they're, they're, they're clever. They think of everything. And again, so we, and we look at this, and here again, we could see, all right, the peace that comes from understanding. Man, obviously, they haven't even heard about these victories we've had the last few weeks. And look, look at their shoes. They're all worn out. And the bread that they have, it's all moldy and crusty. I mean, it says, it says here in verse 14, so the men of Israel took some of their provisions. They didn't take them because they were good. What it's saying here is they bought the thing hook, line, and sinker. They bought into totally into the lie. They completely believed what they are being said. And secondly, it says they did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. They placed their the, the pride in their own judgment, their own assessment. They looked at it and said, "This is common sense." Well, guys, just because it's common sense doesn't mean it makes sense. We can we we have a whole lot in common. We're not very smart. I mean, none of us like to be I. You guys have watched the news this week, right? Nobody likes to be called stupid. But the fact of the matter is, we are where we are because of the way our country is voted. <laughs> so, guys got a point. And, bottom line here, it, it shows it here. Nobody likes to be, nobody likes to say you're a fool. Nobody likes to say, man, you are so gullible. But the enemy is laughing right now because they are. Why? Because they relied on common sense. Seems to make sense to me. And we're relying on our limited vision. We could all get together and say, you know what? This sounds great. This makes perfect sense. But why not consult with the one who can see the future who knows everything, who exists outside of the space-time continuum, whatever that means. He exists outside of everything that we're confined by. Why not go to him? Because we're limited, even even if we all come to consensus. They walked by sight instead of faith. And, you know... We can we can look at this and and again we can we can we can understand we can place ourselves in this and we can understand, and we could probably say, well, they got to make a quick decision on this. I mean, they've come all this way; they got to get going back home. I mean, they they we got so let's make a quick decision, guys. Time is never an issue; it should never be an issue that would keep us from praying, that would keep us from moving. Somebody comes to you and says, you know, I gotta, I, we got to move now. Here's, here's some keys. If there's any doubt, don't move. Don't do it. If there's no time to pray, don't act. If you can't wait for peace, don't move. Guys, we, no one who has ever waited on the Lord has ever regretted it. Amen. We wait on the Lord. I mean, I, We've all had those situations, right? Man, this deal is too good to be true, and if I wait, we're going to miss it. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If it was meant for you, you'll get it. If it's not, you don't want it. they didn't. They didn't seek the counsel of the Lord. They believed everything that was laid before them. They made the covenant with them. Verse 16, it came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were, that they were neighbors and that they were living within the land. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Shepharah and Beeroth and Kareth-Jerim. The sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. I'm fascinated by this because... They realized that they had been lied to, that they had been deceived, that they bought the lie, and yet, because they made a vow, breaking their word was not even on the table. It was not an option. They had said that we will make this covenant with you, and even though it was made because they were deceived, because they were lied to, they continued on in that covenant. They said, breaking the covenant, it's not even an option. Even when the people were saying, how could you do this? They said, we, we were deceived, we were lied to, and we will not break it. Because again, they represent the Lord. They represent God. You know, many years later, Saul did break the covenant. And did go to war against Gibeon. And it tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse verse 1, it says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the sons of Israel, but the remnant of the Amorites, and the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul had sought to kill them. So Saul breaks that covenant, and Israel is punished because of it. Again, God would when we make a vow, when we when we give our word, guys as Christians, above everything else, our word should mean something. Especially in a world that we live in where People's word doesn't mean anything. Well, verse verse 20 says, This we will do to them, even let them live, so that wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. The leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation just as the leaders had spoken to them. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us saying you were very far, we were very far from you when you were living within our land? Now therefore you are cursed and you shall never cease from being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, because it was certainly told your servant that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all this land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore, we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for all the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. Now we've, we've looked at the subtlety of the enemy and the, and the susceptibility of humanity but here we see the sovereignty of the Almighty. Even in this, even in this deception that was bought hook, line, and sinker, God still comes out at the end on top. Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Everything works out for their good and God's glory. They become, (laughs) I love how God works. They become the ones who get the wood for the altar in the tabernacle for the, for, the, for the sacrifices and bring the water for the cleansing. They're the ones who now have this job. And notice there's no complaints. The Gibeonites aren't like, what? That, we're not gonna do that. That's, that's, the, that's like the, the, the lowest part of the job, right? I mean, that's the hard labor. That's the stuff. And, and who gets credit for that? Whoever gets to see those types of things. But again, I, I look at this and I say, I, 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 I got to give the Gibeonites a little bit of credit here. Again, their ingenuity, their deceptiveness. Okay, we've talked about that. But their understanding of their situation. They realize if they don't do something, they're going to die, they could ally themselves with these other kings that are gonna fight. We're gonna find out what happens because they didn't in the next chapter. But instead of doing that, they humbly come. Yes, it was deceptive, but it was in humility. They came, and and look, look ahead with me really quick. Chapter 10, verse two. And he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and it, because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Gibeon didn't come because they were the weakest of the cities. They came in, in humility. They're used to royalty, royal cities. Yet now they are coming and agreeing to whatever terms. You make us slaves, cool. We're good with that. They embrace, they embrace what we all ought to embrace, Psalm 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. Almighty God, we're just learning about him. We're just coming to understand who he is, but we recognize that he is God Almighty, and we'd rather serve in his tabernacle, cutting wood and bringing water, than than a thousand times out there, (laughs) a thousand days out there. I would rather stand in the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. They get it. They get it already, even though they don't even understand fully who this God is. They came in humility. And you know what? They're going to continue. We're going to see them as we continue to study the history of the children of Israel. Just as, remember, Rahab, we talked about how in, in her obedience... And an understanding, limited as it was, saying, I'll do whatever it takes. I'm going to follow your God now. She be, she's ended up in the, in the lineage of, of Jesus. We're going to see that these Gibeonites, one of them, at least one of them, became one of the mighty men of David. And they're going to be instrumental in rebuilding the wall under Nehemiah. So all of this stuff, it's awesome when, when they say, all right, we're going to follow. We're going to submit and come under this. Well, moving on now, chapter, chapter 10. Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king. So he had done to Ai and its king. And that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land. That he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like the one of royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Horem, king of Hebron. And to Piram, king of Jarmuth. And to Japhai, king of Lachish. And to Deber, the king of Eglon, saying... Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites and the kings of Jerusalem and the the king of Hebron, the king of Jeremuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they with all of their armies, and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. So these five Areas we were talking about earlier, they're, they're now coming together, full frontal attack, but the first place they're going to attack is Gibeon because they made an alliance with Israel. So we're going to take care of them first, then go battle, battle Israel. Just a couple of things on this, I find this kind of interesting. Adonai Zedek literally means Lord of Righteousness. Adonai, you know, you see that? Adonai meaning Lord, Zedek meaning Righteousness. Lord of righteousness. Interesting, just because of the study that we've been doing in Revelation, we obviously know that this king isn't righteous, but carrying with it that idea, maybe a picture kind of type of the Antichrist, gathering together these other kings to come and battle Joshua. I don't know, just thought that that was kind of interesting. Not doctrinal, don't, not not drawing any real hard parallels there. Just thought it was interesting. If you don't, that's your business. All right, verse 6. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. Now, I, I like this again, because here's Gibeon doing what Israel should have done all the time. They're not relying on their own strength. They're, they could have gone out to battle. They're full of mighty men, but they're saying, we can't do this. Hey, Joshua, you mind coming on up here and lending us a hand in this? You and Bring your God with you. <laughs> we know how powerful he is. We've made an alliance with you now. And when I look at this, it says in verse 7, So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of the war with him, and all the valiant warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. Again, we could look at this, and here's this message coming. Hey, hey, Joshua! You remember us? We're the guys that we're partners now. Remember? And there's now five cities. They're they're pretty big, and they've come all against us. My first thought: Hey, we're out of this deal. (laughs) You know, look at what God's doing. We made the mistake, we made the covenant, but man, they're gonna get wiped out, covenant's over. But that's not the heart of the covenant, right? The covenant was, not only are we not gonna kill you, but we've made an alliance together. And so Joshua honors honors that covenant. A man, again, of integrity. And he obviously, again, has, has the Lord here with him, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. That again is a command, don't fear them, but there's a promise that comes with the command, for I have given them into your hands, not one of them shall stand before you. I love that in this again, that God is giving the command to go forward, but the promise that follows right on the heels of it. I have given them to you. Victory is already yours. We've talked of this, that that we as, as believers, the Bible tells us that we are more than conquerors. How are you ever more than a conqueror? Well, a conqueror leaves the battle victorious. More than a conqueror, enters the battle victorious. And that is what we are. And that is, what, that is what the children of Israel are going into this. They're entering the battle victorious. Don't fear them. Don't fear them. I'm with you. Verse nine, it says, so Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. Now this may seem just, Pretty s- simple on the cover of this. But when we look at this in depth, this is, this is, this is amazing. It says that, that Joshua and his army marched all night. They had to. As I mentioned earlier, Gil- that, that Gibeah is about 20 miles away. But not only 20 miles, there is a change in elevation of almost 3,500 feet from where they started up to where they're going. So all night they marched 20 miles uphill all the way. Sounds like my dad telling me on his way to school, right? <laughs> but this, uh, they did this, and might I remind you to save a people that lied to them. Wow. Wow. Remember this, the next time that somebody hurt you, that that has hurt you, needs you, especially if they are a believer. Bible tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens unconditionally, not only if they haven't offended you, not if they've never hurt you, but bear one another's burdens, This, again, (laughs) when I look at how Joshua and the people of Israel, Joshua didn't go alone. The armies went with them. Those that had been deceived, lied to, brought into this covenant that that has long-lasting repercussions in it. Yet when they are needed, they all night, uphill, this elevation climb to go and fight the battle. And God honors that. Look, verse 10, And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of ascent to Beth-horon, and struck them as far as as Ezekah and Mekedah. As they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth-horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died." There were more who died from the hailstones than those from whom the sons of Israel killed with the, storm, with the sword. So it tells us here that, that the Lord, this is the Lord's battle. God is, God is not only honoring this, he's fighting for them, as he does always. It's his battle. It says, notice, it says the Lord confounded them, the Lord slew them, the Lord pursued them, and the Lord struck them the lord used israel to do that but it's the lord who is the one who is who is in charge of this and that's that's the the great thing about how the lord fights these battles and is involved in all of this the lord gets the victory but he uses us sometimes other times he just does it himself throwing hailstones at them more were killed with the hailstones than than israel he's probably a better shot than Verse 12, see, the longest day ever. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites from before the sons of Israel and said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Aijalon." So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of of Jashar and the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day? And there was no day like it from that before or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of man and the Lord fought for Israel. Now, Bible skeptics and critics point to this and say, well, that's impossible. Well, of course it is. (laughs) But God can do the impossible. And, and well, well, how did they do it? Well, I, I don't know. And then they point to the well, it says the sun stood still. Well, we know now that the sun doesn't move. Okay. Um, uh, th- th- when, when you got up this morning and you looked out and you saw the beauty in the sky just after dawn, did you say, oh, look at that gorgeous earth rotation? No, you said, look at that beautiful sunrise. The sun did not rise this morning. The earth was moving. But that's just, okay, all right, silly. But more importantly, it happened at Joshua's word. I think that's awesome. That's something that that I I camp at for a moment because it says that, you know, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day. Joshua said, God, stop the sun. Lord, we need more time today. Sun stands still, moon stands still. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped at Joshua's word. You know, it tells us, of another man who said something again that that affected nature at his word. Elijah, 1 Kings 17, now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gibeon, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Wow. (laughs) And you know what? It didn't. It stopped raining at Elijah's word. Now, where I want to go with that next is James chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Sound like anybody else's nature in here? (laughs) Just to go ahead and command nature to stop or to do something different. You got faith like that? That's what this is. This is faith in action. This is Joshua exercising his faith. This is Elijah exercising his faith. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. He prayed again, the sky poured down rain, and the earth produced its fruit. I'm challenged when I when I, when I look at this, because I say, okay, what's the difference in their faith? And please hear me when I say this, because this is a matter of faith. Uh-oh, where are you going with this? Are you saying name it and claim it? Well, it depends on how you describe that. How are you going to define that? Because Joshua and Elijah both did. They named it and they claimed it it's a matter of faith it's a matter of humility and it's a matter of god's will being so in tune with what god desires god's will then to have then on that to have the faith to pray it not for our own personal gain Joshua gained nothing by having an extra twenty-four hours, except probably a, a sore muscles. You know, Elijah didn't gain anything by it not raining for three years. He had to. He had to. He, God provided water for him. Yes, but there was a famine in the land because of that. So it wasn't. It wasn't. Name it and claim it, and rich and health and wealth. That's not at all what is said. John tells us, 1 John chapter 5, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Now, again, I want to caution around what I'm saying, but guys, we need to seek the will of God. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, remember, about the will of God and how to discern that for our own lives and, and how we do that, if you missed it, a couple of weeks ago, on a Wednesday night, last time we were in Joshua. But, and you could watch it online, I guess, that's where I'm, where I'm going with that. You can check that out and watch that, because it's important that we understand the will of God in our life. But when we are actively living and we are in prayer, seeking the Lord, again, remember it said, Elijah earnestly prayed. Joshua, praying, Lord, what is it? And that, that is there. He knew that God, what did God tell Joshua? Go, I've delivered them to you already. This is a done deal. Go, it's the will of God that they win this battle. And Joshua's there, and again, he's seeing, they're fighting five armies. God, we need a little more time. Praying the will of God, and there, there it was. All right. Verse 15, then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at to Gilgal. Now these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Mekedah. Guys you want to really follow, right? Middle of battle, five of them get together, go run and hide in a cave. Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by standing at guard. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies and attack them in the rear, do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. So here are the, here are the kings, they run into the cave, you couldn't have taken the opportunity to deal with the kings right there. No, we got work to do. Tell you what, they're cornered, put some rocks over there, send one guy to make sure they don't get out, the rest of you keep going, to keep pursuing the enemy, the God, has, God has given them to you. Came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a very great slaughter until they were destroyed, and the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities, that all the men returned to the camp to Joshua at Mekedah in peace. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. I look again that whole idea that God works all things together for good, put the pieces together real quickly. He drew He took the fact that these people at Gibeon had come and made the, the, the truce with them. Now these five kings want to come and fight against them. He made it easier for the children of Israel. Notice, they were in fortified cities. God drew them out of the fortified cities to fight this one that they had made alliance. God goes, all right, now go take care of them. They're all out sitting right out in the open for you. Just go get them. God is so good how he works it all together even our mistakes. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave, bring these kings out to me from the cave. So they did and brought the five kings out from them, from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. When they brought these kings out, to Joshua. Joshua called for all the men of Israel, and he said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. That was a symbol of absolute domination. We are, we are in control over their enemy. Joshua then said to them, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do with all of your enemies with whom you fight." here Joshua is is encouraging them passing along a blessing that God had given to him God said be strong and courageous you will have this victory now here Joshua is bringing the leaders and passing that along second corinthians 3 or I'm sorry second corinthians 1 verse 3 blessed be the god and father of our lord Jesus Christ the father of mercies and the god of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort with which we have received. Here's Joshua passing that on. The comfort that he got from the Lord in going into battle, now here passing this on to the rest as they're going to go out and fight more battles. So afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death and hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening, came about at sunset that Joshua gave the command, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. For the sake of time, over the next few verses, uh, starting in verse 28, we see that they then go out from there, capture Mekedah, then Libna, then Lachish, then verse 34, Eglon. So they go and they capture all of the cities that had come against and fought against them. Verse 36, Hebron. Then verse 38, Debir. So all of these they go and capture the same way, completely wiping out the enemy totally. Verse 40, thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev and the low land and the slopes and all their kings. He left no survivor, but utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Again, that's the key. The Lord is the one fighting. The Lord is the one winning the battle. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal, undefeated, <laughs> didn't lose another battle after Ai. They weren't easy, all of them. Certainly, again, there's battles and fights that, that go on, but God led, God determined the path, God determined the cities, God determined the order of things, and God fought the battles. Victory after victory after victory. And here, as we close out chapter 10, you can look at a, at a map and kind of see if you follow what they've done, where they came in the promised land or, and through Jericho up to Ai and then cut across almost right at the center and now have gone south and captured all of these southern kingdoms. So now the they can no longer help when they go up to attack the north. Just a great great divide-and-conquer war strategy, but again, undefeated as they return now back to Gilgal. Well, that's all we have time for tonight. We'll pick up chapter 11. Next week, remember, is our Thanksgiving family service. Bring your family, kids, everybody come on next week, same time, for our Thanksgiving Eve service, and we'll pick up chapter 11 the following week. Pray with me. Lord, thank you. For our time together tonight, Lord, it is always special to spend time together in your word, and our desire, Lord, is not just to hear some interesting facts and, re- and remember history, but, Lord, that you would speak to us personally, and, Lord, that we would be changed by you, changed by your living word in us, changed by the Holy Spirit guiding and leading and directing us going forward from here. Lord, we have, we have time left in our week Lord, we ask that we would use it all for you. Lord, that you would work in and through us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of the week. Even though I walk through the valley. Of the shadow of death Your perfect love is casting out fear